are you a DIYer? You know, do-it-yourself kind of person. You know, you're, you're just going to handle it on your own. You're, you're that person that when there's a project at home or at work or at school, you're just going to take it on. You're going to figure out how to do it. You're going you're to handle it. You're going to own it. Maybe you uh, put together a 1968 Buick Skylark from the ground up, and you did the whole thing with a leather man and just some YouTube videos. Man, you just, you owned it. You just made it happen. Or maybe, maybe you made a table runner for Thanksgiving this year, and you made it out of painted walnuts and a bunch of flannel shirts that you got from some clothing swap party. You just, you just DIY'd a great runner. Or maybe you took some apples, and you made some candle holders for the table for Thanksgiving, just bringing a little light to Thanksgiving dinner. There's probably a hundred other things that you might be a, a DIYer in. But as nice as those apple candle holders may be, there are some DIY Thanksgiving things that don't go well. There's some fails that happen on Thanksgiving, particularly when it comes to food. I found a few of those fails this week. Someone posted this, my husband and I make a good team. I'm about to start cooking Thanksgiving dinner and he's taking the batteries out of the smoke detectors. Yeah. Good teamwork there. Another lady said this, thought I'd somehow forgotten to order most of the ingredients I needed for Thanksgiving cooking. Turns out my husband just forgot to get any of them out of his trunk seven hours ago. Never done that. Left the eggs in there all night. One more. Well, if my new coworkers weren't already aware that I'm from the South, I accidentally put double the amount of butter in my hash brown casserole for tomorrow's Thanksgiving pilot. That's not a fail. <laughs> That's a win. Yeah, best hash brown casserole in the world. Always need more butter. Part of what it means to be a DIYer is that you know how to do something. And if you don't know how to do something, you go find out how to do whatever that may be. Well, what if I were to tell you that there is one know-how that can change every DIY project you'll ever tackle? And what if I were to tell you that same know-how will change every moment of your marriage, every moment of your single life, every moment at work, every moment at school, every moment when the internet goes out at home or at work and you do everything you can to get the internet back up and nothing you do ever gets the internet back up. All right, this is a bit of a, a spin from what's happened at the church this week, just to let you know. Um, what do you do, though, when, when these moments, everything is, is not working? Well, there's this, this know-how, this know-how that basically changes every single moment of your life. And that sounds like something I might want to know about, something that's so powerful that it can change any and every moment of my life. I want to know what that is. What is that power? Well, let's find out. Listen to Philippians 4, beginning with verse 12. Apostle Paul writes this. I know how to get along with humble means. What was Paul's know-how? What did he know how to do? Well, he knew how to get along. He knew how to keep moving along. He knew how to live life day after day after day and to keep moving. And the language here that he uses when he says, I know how, it's been described as something that's drilled deep down in your heart. Paul's not talking about a, a do-it-yourself project. It's more like a this-is-yourself purpose. 
It's not that you have information about how to do something. It's that there is something drilled into your heart that says this is how I should live. This is how I should desire to live. This is how I must live. I want to give you a little deeper picture behind this know-how, though, a little, a little deeper gospel picture behind it. Last week, I was listening to a message by a pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church just south of Nashville, Tennessee. His name is Mike Glenn. Mike was talking about how it was a Thursday night, and he was speaking to their young adult group, their, their Yopro group at their meeting on Thursday night. And he was telling them a story, an illustration about things that happen on Antique Roadshow. If you never watched this, you're missing out. It's pure entertainment. Uh, it's where people bring their old stuff and see if it's worth anything. And he said, it's like watching an episode of that, and you see a lady, and she brings a cup. And it's just, you know, some old cup. And, and the antique expert picks the cup up, and all of a sudden, you know, his eyes get big, and he pulls out the white gloves, puts the white gloves on, and, and he holds this cup very carefully. And he says, man, th- this cup, there's only three of them in the world. And we didn't know where the third one was. The, the other two, they're in museums, but, but now I'm holding the third cup. And she says, well, well, how much is it worth? And he turns it over on the Bible, and he says, you see the inscription here? It's, it's the signature of the artist. And because that signature's there, I can't tell you what it's worth. It's, it's too valuable for me to put a number on. And Mike Glenn said he turned to those Yopros and he said this, I wish I could grab you and turn you upside down and show you where God, the greatest artist of all, signed you. I cannot tell you what you are worth. And then he went on to say, you know, someone in real estate will say the value of a property is only determined by what someone is willing to pay for that property. And he told him this, on the day that the world demanded your ransom, Jesus Christ gave his life for you. I can't tell you what you are worth. He said that night when he was finished, a a young girl came up to him. She was just sobbing, just weeping, just desperate in tears. And she looked up at him and she said this, nobody told me I was signed. My life would be different if I knew I was signed. Let me ask you just a simple question that I think has unbelievable potential in your life and really has eternal consequence in your life. What is drilled into your heart? What's drilled into your heart? What, what is the purpose and meaning of your life? What are you trying to find your purpose and meaning in? Maybe you're trying to find your, your purpose and your meaning in your grades at school. Maybe your, your favorite sport. Maybe you're trying to find your meaning in that limited edition holiday collection from the Ulta store. You know, just, just something that you seem something that gets you so excited. Or maybe you're trying to find your meaning and your purpose in relationships. You're looking for adoration from that boy or that girl at school. You're, you're looking from that, for adoration from that man or that woman at work. You're looking for affection in your marriage. You're, you're looking for affirmation from your parents. You're looking for acceptance from your friends. 
Where are you looking for meaning and purpose? And maybe, maybe you've looked so hard that now you just feel broken. Maybe you feel like that your divorce has, has wrecked your emotions. Maybe you feel like some kind of disease has, has wrecked your body. Maybe you're in a place where, where you're so discouraged that you just you feel like that your mind is wrecked. Or maybe you're so depressed that you feel like your spirit is wrecked. Meaning and purpose, when we pursue it in the wrong place, they can really leave us wrecked. So I, I want your life to be different. We want, as a church, we want your life to be different. So I, I just want to repeat those words from Mike one more time, and I, and I pray that your heart will be able to hear them. This is what he said. On the day that the world demanded your ransom, Jesus Christ gave his life for you. I can't tell you what you're worth. Paul's meaning, his purpose was found in the fact that, that he was signed. He knew that Jesus had had ransomed him. He knew that his value was connected to Jesus. And he knew how to get along with humble means. Paul was in prison when he was writing this letter. His his freedom had been taken away. A lot of his resources had been taken away. But, But long before he ever made it to prison, Paul knew about humble means. He was a pastor, teacher, theologian, missionary, evangelist, church planner when the church was still brand new, when Christianity was still brand new. So he had to kind of earn his way, kind of pay his own way a lot. And the way he did that was by being a tent maker. Wasn't glamorous, but it was, it was an honest wage, you know. You might get a little special interest piece in tent maker magazine, but you're not going to get on the, the front of, of time. But it was an honest wage, It was something that was worthy to be done, but it was just an honest wage. It was just enough to pay the bills. It wasn't enough to go buy a BMW. Paul, he he was drilled down deep in his heart with this knowledge that, that the meaning and purpose of his life, the very love of his life was so connected to the person of Jesus that he knew how to get along with humble means. He knew how to get along when he did not have the best things in life. He knew how to get along even if he had stone soup for Thanksgiving meal. He just knew how to function in humble means. But it wasn't humble means only. He knew how to get along with something else. Listen to the next part of verse 12. And I also know how to live in prosperity. Now, this this ain't the place between here and Newberry, all right? Different town, all right? Different place. Paul knew how, how to live in prosperity in the sense that that he knew how to live with things. Paul, Paul lived in some kind of privilege when he was growing up. It's been said that he had the equivalent of two PhDs before he was 21 years old. Now, he may not have grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth, but, but clearly we see just from his education that Paul wasn't raised by a family of scruffy nerf herders. You know, he, he was somewhere in a world of privilege. He knew what it meant to have the finer things in life. He had lived in prosperity. And so Paul's saying, look, you know what's drilled into my heart? That I can function, I can get along, I can do life 
If I have the best of things or if I have nothing. If I have barely anything or if I have everything. Paul says, I know how to function. I know how to get along if I have it all or if I have nothing. How about us? If we profess to be Christians, how are we at getting along with humble means and getting along with prosperity? When, when we're in a state of, of humble means, when we're having to do without something, you know, like the internet, <laughs> when we're having to do without something, what, how, do we, how do we function? How do we get along? Or maybe when we have more than we need, how do we get along? Do we lose our mind? Are we chaotic when we're in need of something, when there's humble means? And when there's prosperity, when we have more than we need, do we ignore the needs of others? If you look at any global wealth calculator, everybody in this room, everybody watching and listening, all of us fall in the 1%. In other words, 99% of the world is poorer than all of us. We may not always feel like it. We may be trying to pay the bills sometimes, but the reality is, in the big picture of the world, we live in prosperity. Paul learned to get along with fewer financial blessings, and he learned to get along with great financial blessings. He learned to get along no matter what he had one way or the other. And then he, then he raises the bar a little bit. Look what he says next in verse 12. In any and every circumstance... So Paul says, look, if I'm rich, I can get along. If I'm poor, I can get along. And then he he pushes the bar up a little bit. He goes, you know what? Actually, in any circumstance you put me, I can get along. I I can keep moving along. Put me in the hospital, I can get along. Put me on the top floor of the Ritz-Carlton, I can get along. Put me in prison, I can get along. How? How is it possible that, that Paul can get along no matter what? How can he get along Either way, look what he says next. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. There it is. That's how he's able to get along. He's got a secret. Ah, a little mystery here. He's He's got a secret. That's how he's able to do it. So where did he learn his secret from? Well, it started off with Jesus. This is what Jesus said, Luke chapter 12. Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Whether you get roasted turkey for Thanksgiving or whether you get the feed that they give the turkeys on the farm for Thanksgiving, Jesus says, don't worry. (laughs) Get along. Just get along and and keep moving along. Listen, that's something we as Christians, we need to know. And let me just say this, that doesn't mean it's easy. I'd love to tell you that all week long, every time the internet has gone out on campus, I've said, you know what, the Lord's been good to me. So, that didn't happen, you know. I lost my mind a few times this week. So it's not easy to get along. It's not easy to move along. But as believers, we need to know it. Here's why. We need to have it drilled into our hearts so that when our emotions don't want to get along, 
The truth of the gospel in our hearts will move us along. It will get us along. We need to have it. It's, it's got to be dug down deep. Charles Spurgeon said this, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, God would have put you there. Chew on that just for a sec, okay? I'm just going to read it again. Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, God would have put you there. What is that one thing in your life right now that you wish would have already happened? Can you trust God with that? Do you feel like God's off schedule, that he's messing up, that he's confused, that he doesn't know what's going on? Or do you just trust him? Can you trust him to do good and do right by you even when none of it feels good or right to you? Now, now let me just be clear. We need to be careful about our sin and saying, God, you better clean this stuff up. We need to be careful to say, well, my sin doesn't matter in this situation. Everything's falling apart, and my sin has nothing to do with it. Bless our hearts. Our sin has everything to do with it. But in, in general, when we begin to think of things that, that haven't happened in life or things that we wish would have been different outside of the place of our direct sin, can we trust God? Can we trust God that our condition is, is not surprising to him? That he's not blind or confused. Listen, if you can trust God with that, let me tell you something, it'll change your life. <laughs> it'll change your life if you can go to bed at night going, you know what, I don't know about this condition, but, but God, I know you do and I can trust you. I can trust you. Paul was somebody that knew how to trust God. He knew how to trust God because he had learned how to trust God. There's a lot of things that didn't go right in Paul's life. He had a lot of things that went wrong. But he had this secret, and he had learned this secret. And how did he go about learning this secret? Listen to what he says next, verse 12. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret both of having abundance and suffering need. I love this. Paul says, I learned the secret through abundance. I learned the secret, the secret through prosperity. I learned the secret when I had everything that I needed. There's a guy named Dr. Harry Ironside, and he went to Grand Rapids, Michigan once, and he was going to be preaching at a Bible conference at a, a mission run by his friend Mel Trotter. And he was put in a hotel in the presidential suite. I mean, full swank. It was amazing. And he told Trotter, he's like, hey, man, I, I don't need this room. Look, I just need a comfortable bed. Give me a desk, a chair, and a lamp. I just need somewhere to study, and that's, that's all I need. thing that he didn't realize was the owner of the hotel had come to faith in Christ through Mel Trotter and his ministry. And so he gave joyfully the room for free. So this is what Trotter said to Ironside. Harry, Paul said he knew how to abound and he knew how to be abased. Now you learn how to abound this week, will you? <laughs> Paul had learned to live with abundance. He'd been there before. Maybe even on his missionary journeys, one of his friends put him up in the presidential suite every now and then. And that's okay because in abundance, Paul had this secret. And his secret worked in prosperity. His secret worked in 
abundance. But it might be good for us to remember these words from Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Story told that George Whitfield got up in the pulpit one day and there was a, a note for him. And this is what the note said. A young man who has lately inherited a large fortune requests the prayers of the congregation. That's a good prayer request. Why? Because see, when you don't have a lot of money, there's not as high of a temptation to worship money. But when you have a lot, there's a high temptation, there's a risk that you'll begin to quit serving the Lord. There's a risk that you'll begin to serve the money instead of serving the Lord, that the love of the money will increase more than a love of God. Generally speaking, compared to the rest of the world, things are pretty comfortable for the average American. A lot of people go out to eat every night. Some people casually shop for for trinkets at the mall. Some people casually shop for, for trinkets at the home improvement store. Some people fill their closets with clothes and shoes that match their color wheel. And more often than not, if, if we kind of look at the statistics of our own lives, we, we spend more on matching towels than sometimes we do on, on the gospel. For 174 years, churches that have been affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention have invested together to make sure that we obey the command from Jesus that the gospel gets to the uttermost parts of the world. That investment is called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. 100% of the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering goes to make sure that the gospel gets to places that it's never been. Now, let me say this. Are there places in our community where people have never heard the gospel? Sure. You know. But there's also about seven zillion churches you know, in our community too. And there's the internet, and there's Bibles at Walmart and Sam's and Dollar General and just about anywhere else you go. There is access to the gospel of our, across every square inch of our community. But there are places in the world where there are no Dollar Generals, there is no internet, there is no Bible, there is no church, there is no knowledge of Jesus. And Jesus' command was, get the gospel to those places. Don't just sit and enjoy it yourself, but get it to the places where no one has ever heard. And so a lot of me Christmas offering, it, it does that. It takes the gospel to places where the gospel has never been heard. Our goal this year is $6,500. That means that amongst the 300 people that come here on Sunday, if all of us give about $20, or to be exact, $21.66, if my math's right, and it's probably not, uh, but, but you know, somewhere around 20 bucks, then we'll, we'll get close to reaching our goal. But, but here's the more interesting thing. It's been estimated that this year the average American will spend $920 on Christmas gifts. Now, i got to be honest, when I read the stat, I had to have read, read it wrong because it said the average American will spend $920 per person. And I went, wait a minute, what? Because it almost sounds like you're going to spend $920 on, you know, Aunt Bessie and Uncle Jesse and, you know, everybody. I was like, man, that's, that's a lot of dough. So let's just assume it's just $920 a person. 
So $920 on Christmas gifts. Now, in other words, what we're kind of saying when you look at the prosperity, generally speaking, of our nation, that we are more inclined to spend $920 on people who don't really need anything than we are to spend $20 on people who need the one thing that the soul needs the most, and that's the gospel. Now, I know, I know. Scrooge McDowell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for the tickets to the guilt trip about the Light of Moon Christmas offering. I, I promise, not, not dropping that. Whatever you want to get for Christmas gifts, with the Lord's leading, go do it. Be kind, be nice, be loving to anybody that's in your life. And by all means, however the Lord leads you, give to the church, give to missions, give to the work of the gospel. But we all need to have that little bit of reminder that no matter how many bills we have stacked next to us, those bills can become something that we love in such a way that we quit serving the Lord. It can happen to any of us, regardless of how much money we have or don't have. Paul knew what it meant to prosper when he had it stacked high. And he knew what it meant to prosper when he was in need. He knew what it, what it meant to prosper, and he knew what it meant to have abundance, but he knew that the secret, it didn't just work in prosperity. It didn't just work in abundance. It worked when he was needy. It worked when he was desperate. It worked when he was suffering. What kind of secret can work like that when you're suffering? This is what Paul said to the folks at Corinth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. When he suffered the most, God comforted him. When he was the most needy, God comforted him. Paul's saying, look, I can get along because the God of the universe, in the moment that I am most desperate, he will comfort my heart. He will encourage me. How? How can God encourage us and comfort us when we're suffering? How does God comfort us when it feels like everything in our life is falling apart? How can God comfort us when the internet's out? And man, we're trying as hard as we can and nothing is working. How does God comfort us when it feels like we can't be comforted? Well, the answer to that question is in the secret. <laughs> Everything's connected to the secret. So what's the secret? Paul gives it, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. First, let me be clear. This is a, a paradoxical verse. You cannot do all things through Christ, okay? Like, for instance, Paul could not free himself from jail through Christ. Paul could not keep himself from being arrested through Christ. Paul could not keep religious people from hating him through Christ. Paul could not keep soldiers from beating him through Christ. Paul could not get people in the church to quit being selfish and arrogant and just be kind and loving to one another. He couldn't force them to do that through Christ. Same is true for us, right? I mean, it doesn't take 
a whole lot of thought to, to realize that this is not some, hey, dream your dream and you can make it a reality. Just use Jesus as your spiritual can of Red Bull and everything will happen just like you want. That's, that's not the picture. See, I, I can't go step off a cliff and, and fly through Christ. I can't walk up these walls through Christ. I can't walk on water through Christ. I know, Peter did. It's probably a one-hit wonder, all right? Just something for that moment, okay? Most of us cannot dunk a basketball on a regulation goal through Christ. We can't get a goldfish to play a clarinet through Christ. And you cannot just eat one potato chip through Christ, okay? I mean, we, we know these things, right? But sometimes we forget them when we start talking about what it means to follow Jesus. Paul did not say, you know, I can do anything in Christ. And, and I just want you to know, that's usually what the meme on social media teaches you. That's usually what we walk away from. Oh, man, I, I can do anything. I got Jesus. It's not what Paul says. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. In other words... No matter what my circumstance, no matter what's going on, for this I have Jesus. For this I have Jesus. No matter what's happening in my life, good, bad, great, ugly, beautiful, whatever's happening, I have my salvation in Jesus Christ dug deep down into my heart and it is what makes me spin. It's my meaning. It's my purpose. Let's try to feel the weight of that a little bit. And this might make us a little uncomfortable. That's okay. If what Paul is saying is true, and it is true because it's about Jesus, then that means that you can be satisfied in a bad marriage through Christ. You can be satisfied in being single through Christ. You can be satisfied in a boring job through Christ. You can be satisfied in a brutal job loss through Christ. You can be satisfied in a blowout sports loss through Christ. You can be satisfied with a bumpy government through Christ. How? How is it that you can be content and satisfied when the internet's out? How can you be broken but not be bitter through Christ? How can you be completely stressed out but not sinful through Christ? Here's how. Because you have Christ. <sighs> silly and simple, Dow. Yeah, it's simple, but it ain't silly. So you can do these things. You can be satisfied and content because you have Christ. When you have Christ, you ultimately have everything that you need the most. But can I just confess, that's not always how we wake up in the morning, is it? We're not always skipping around town going, for this I have Jesus. All right, everything's great. Now, we, we don't function like that always, right? Sometimes life is a struggle. Adrian Siegel is a wife, a mom, a grandmom in Minnesota. She said this, No one and nothing in the world can really promise us 
that we will have a good job, a nice home, plenty to eat, good friends, loving family, good health, safety, or really much of anything else. And she says this, you can play by the rules, by working hard, being responsible, and being kind to others, but there is really no promise that will pay off in the end. Why? She says, the world is fragile and unpredictable. An illness, a terrorist attack, a war, a divorce, and a million other things can happen at any time. In an instant, our world is shattered. She wrote this a couple of years ago in light of Hurricane Harvey coming through Houston. She goes on to say this, I wonder what the thousands of families in Houston who lost homes and all their possessions would think of my little morning list of complaints. Let me... Let me over-illustrate this from my own sin. There are people even connected to our church this morning that their life is a little more difficult than the internet being out at church. On any given day, on any given moment, whatever it is that you're in the middle of, chances are someone in your family or someone in your church family or somebody you work with or someone that you go to school with, they're having it worse. Does that mean your problem doesn't matter? No, that's not what it means. It just means that perspective is amazing for a Christian. And taking just a half a step back sometimes, you don't even have to go the whole way, just, just a half a step sometimes will help you get a picture of the beauty of the gospel and the kindness of God's grace and mercy in your life if all you can do is see the words on a page, if all you can do is hear the song on the radio, if all you can do is physically stand up and walk from one run room to the next. She goes on. Some people even lost loved ones in a few short days because a hurricane suddenly roared through their neighborhood. Whatever expectations these families may have had the week before the hurricane are gone now. All of a sudden, contentment means a bed, a hot meal, and donated clothing. It's amazing how many things can change in, in just a moment. Just, just a minute, everything is different. So in light of a broken, fallen world, in light of a world that no matter how long we may long for the good old days, and no matter how long we want things to stay just like they are right now, we live in a world that will change and is unpredictable, and you can't change that. So in light of that, in light of a, a fallen, unpredictable, changing world, how can we, through Christ, do trials, do troubles, and do tragedies? How can we get along? This is what Adrian says. Paul could say... He was content because he knew without a doubt that when he was born again through Jesus Christ, he was born into a reality that transcends and conquers this world. That's huge. A reality that conquers this world. What kind of reality is that? This is how Jesus said it. John 14, verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. That's not a fairy tale promise. That's a, a guarantee. A guarantee based on the birth 
and the life and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus. It's a a guaranteed promise based on the, the person of Jesus Christ that he is preparing a place for you, dear Christian. Spurgeon said this, it's so good. Saints have no hell but what they suffer here on earth. Sinners will have no heaven but what they have here in this poor, troublesome world. Don't, don't. We we will all be tempted to do it this afternoon. But don't give your glory to this world. Don't give your glory to your family. Don't give your glory to your job. Don't give your glory to your team. Give your glory to God. Because this world is is poor and troublesome. Spurgeon goes on. You may have scarcely a house to cover your head, but you have a mansion in heaven, a house not made with hands. Your head may often lie without a pillow, but it shall one day wear a crown. Your hands may be blistered with toil, but they shall sweep the strings of golden harps. You may have to go home often to a dinner of herbs, but there you shall eat bread in the kingdom of God and sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mm. Listen, this Thanksgiving, if you sit down with your family at home or if you sit down at Waffle House with strangers, wherever you are on Thanksgiving, I pray that that drilled down into your heart, deep into your heart, this truth would be real. That no matter what you experience in this poor, troublesome world, that you have the confidence that one day you will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus loved you, And he gave himself up for you, and you have surrendered your all to him. And therefore, this Thanksgiving, and this Christmas, and tomorrow, and ten minutes from now, Jesus will be your satisfaction. Jesus will be your satisfaction. So if you have abundance, you will have Jesus. If you have prosperity, you will have Jesus. If you have humble means, you will have Jesus. If you are hungry, you will have Jesus. Jesus will be your satisfaction. What a glorious secret that today we really can do all things through Christ.